Welcome to Church Life Today. I'm Tim O'Malley, Managing Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and host of this program. Today we're happy to welcome Anna Keating. Anna Keating is the coordinator of Catholic Life at Colorado College in Colorado Springs. She's a 2006 graduate of the University of Notre Dame in the program of liberal studies. In addition to her work at Colorado College, Anna is the author of the Catholic Catalog, a field guide to the daily acts that make up a Catholic life, published by Image. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I wanted to start with a question from a piece that you recently wrote for our journal on the perils of striving for the perfect family. What's wrong with trying to have a perfect family? Oh, besides that, it'll make you crazy. (laughs) Yeah, besides that small Um, point. Yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with perfectionism in some sense. I mean, it's part of our Christian tradition, right, is striving to imitate Christ and to grow in holiness. Um, But especially this time of year, there can be this kind of manic surface kind of, I'm going to have a Christian household, and that means that there's not going to be any crumbs on the floor, or nobody's ever going to throw a tantrum. And that's just not real life. Um, And so in my book and in my work with students, I try to welcome them into my family's life in a more real or authentic way and showing that uh, following Christ is messy and having a Christian household is beautiful and complicated and kind of letting some of that, um, the beauty of the life, but also the messiness of the life show through so that it doesn't feel unattainable or oppressive, (laughs) but it feels joyful and real. And um, that kind of means letting them into my life as it actually is, which includes the fact that the baby Jesus in my manger scene is cracked down the middle because my son dropped it when we were blessing the house last epiphany. You know, it's not a manger scene for show. It's something that we actually use. And when you're actually doing this stuff and using it, things get broken and that's okay. Yeah, it's a it's a really excellent point. I actually don't know where any uh, of the figures from my nativity set are at the end of any Christmas <laughs> moment. They are scattered throughout the home and discovered only many years later. That's right. So this theme of messiness, do you find that the young adults you work with at Colorado College sort of resonate with this? I mean, in some ways, there's models of working with young adults and a sense of, okay, well, it really needs to be a high-level production in which we show them, you know, the perfection of the church. Or is it this kind of mundane messiness that really sort of woos them in? I mean, I think there's a place for beauty. At Colorado College, we have a candlelight mass, and I've had people tell me, oh, I came for the candle. And I think that's totally fine, (laughs) Um, because art and beauty are sort of windows into the divine life. So it's okay to want it to be beautiful and to strive for beauty. But it's also just reminding them that for some crazy reason, Jesus enters into relationship with human beings. And so we're going to stumble over the readings and we're going to get on each other's nerves and let each other down. And that's what a real community looks like. That's what a real family looks like, you know, is the beauty of a candle mass and also the funny moment when, you know, someone messes up the Our Father. <laughs> um, so that it's this living, breathing work of art that we're a part of um, and not something that needs to go into a museum, I guess, is sort of the difference. Yeah, it's a, you know, you, you say something about uh, this degree of, of kind of messiness and beauty linked together. How did you find this in your own life, the, the, the link between these two things? Um, you know, what's your own story that's led to this? 
Well, I wanted to write this book, The Catholic Catalog, with my mom because I had a really weird childhood. Um, We kept all of these beautiful Catholic traditions in our home. And when I got to Notre Dame, I realized that a lot of other kids didn't grow up with St. Nicholas Day or St. Lucy's Day or chanting evening prayer, um, that a lot of these beautiful traditions and devotions hadn't been passed on. Um, So I wanted to kind of share and create a field guide um, if somebody wanted to try um, to bring some of these practices into their daily life that they could have this book as a reference um, to try to do Our Lady of Guadalupe or to try to go on a pilgrimage, etc. So I had a really weird childhood, but I think that that childhood also was such a gift to me because there were lots of times when I didn't believe or when I didn't feel that I could live up to what the Catholic Church taught about this or that issue. I'm thinking in high school, sexuality, right? These are challenging things. Um, But if it had just been reduced to an ethic, I don't know if I would have, um, I would have stayed in the same way because I had fallen in love with a way of life that was beautiful and um, that was life-giving. And so even when the ethic or the faith was challenging me, and even now it challenges me, um, I still wanted to be a part of this thing that I'd fallen in love with. And so I guess that's kind of the idea behind the book. And what I hope to impart at CC is that you don't have to already have everything figured out in order to come. You can come for the candles. You can come for the singing. Um, You can come to hear the story about Jesus, you know, wherever you're at with your faith. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a sense in which it it provides an openness. Catholicism is a culture that you can immerse yourself in and uh, not just... Have fervent belief throughout the, the the time, but that you really sort of live it out as it becomes embodied in your life. Right, that you fall in love first. I think that love is what impels action, not necessarily reason. <laughs> and so you fall in love with a way of life or a story, um, a story of Jesus, and then kind of grow into the challenges and the ethics and trying to live that the challenges of that. But you don't get it all at once. You know, it happens over time. So just this invitation, this open window is the idea of the book. Just start with one kind of devotion, start with one um, activity to bring a sense of this, the sacred or the divine into your life. Um, at Colorado College, it's a very secular school. Um, so I make candles. Last We just did this last week with the kids. Um, and a lot of kids come to make Hanukkah or Advent candles who've never had any kind of religious experience, but that's just a beginning. It's a way in to light candles in a dark room and talk about prayer. So we start wherever we are and um, try to fall in love with something before we demand (laughs) total understanding because the love comes first. You're listening to Church Life Today, and I'm speaking to Anna Nussbaum-Keating about her recent book, The Catholic Catalog. Uh, Anna, I want to ask you, you, you know, you've mentioned some of these practices What's your favorite practice uh, that's really stuck with you over the ages? The the one that you think that has captured your imagination the most? I think what stuck with me the most from my own childhood, uh, evening prayer around the Advent wreath. Um, Sometimes in the Mass, I was distracted as a kid, you know, by all the other people. And I just, I didn't always understand what was happening in the Mass. Um, But... We had this beautiful advent calendar. My parents used this LTP. I think it was called Fling Wide the Doors. And each window was like a stained glass window and the candles in the darkness and singing um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. All those experiences really stayed with me. The other thing is just the readings that because it was the room was all dark, I think I heard the poetry of the readings. Um, 
both the kind of scary apocalyptic stuff and the really beautiful uh, prophetic stuff. The Magnificat really stayed with me. So I think that time of the year, every year, was sort of a time when my family reset a little bit, um, giving each other the sign of peace, praying together in the night. Um, and that really stuck with me, even into adulthood, of wanting to pass that on to my children, wanting to, to tell them the story of Mary. Um, so those little things can do a tremendous amount of work in somebody's life. It might seem like a small thing, because it's only a really small part of the liturgical year. But I think for me, it made a huge impact. But everybody's domestic church is going to look different. So there's lots of stuff in the book. If Advent isn't your thing, you know, there might be something else that is. What have you learned about parenting? I mean, I feel like I'm exhausted right now. I'm My children are all sick and uh, kicking me throughout the night at various times. Um, you, you know, what have you learned about keeping this kind of practice, keeping this devotion in, in the midst of having children, uh, which, which in some ways is a great gift, but also a challenge to our own faith? Yeah. I mean, being a mom just kind of crushed me, especially the first year. My son was really sick and I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea how hard it was going to be. So it's a very humbling thing. But for me, at the same time, it's been good because I have a tendency towards perfectionism and you can't really be a perfectionist (laughs) when you have children. You have to kind of have a sense of humor and roll with it. I mean, if your son is saying his prayers in like a robot voice or, (laughs) you know, doesn't want to do it or whatever, um, it's just those opportunities to like laugh at yourself and try to love someone who's difficult to love. I mean, children are difficult to love. I think it's okay to say that even though they're wonderful, they can be really challenging. So I have lots of thoughts about being a parent, but I don't know how I would be a parent if I didn't have some kind of religious practice. The reason I say that is because it just feels like every day is such a grind sometimes with small children and the liturgical calendar, having some kind of religious practice means that it's not just, one darn thing after another, the same thing every day. It breaks it up and it allows you to bring these little moments of beauty, these little moments of quiet into your life. And they can be very small moments. It could be a lullaby. I remember my mom singing lullabies to us before bed that were all hymns. And that was another moment where it just was a tinge moment, this little opening into wonder, into the divine, a little place of peace and beauty in my day. And I don't know what I would do as a parent if I didn't have some kind of religious practice, both for myself, not to lose it when I'm frustrated or feeling despairing about whatever phase some child is going through, but also as a way of bringing those little moments of beauty and peace into our life and breaking it up, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, as I'm listening to you, it strikes me, you know, we often talk around the Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. We talk about, you know, formation for Catholic leadership and, and the manner in which it's carried out. And it strikes me listening to you, one, one of the things that I think often dioceses, parishes, and, and even our own university often forgets is that this leadership formation is, is th- that this role of parent is essential to this leadership formation. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but my um, religious education in a parish, I I'd hate to say this, but it wasn't great. I think it was so much emphasized on children. You know, children need to learn mostly ethics, right from wrong. And um, A, I love that now more parishes are doing things like Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, where children aren't just learning, just boiling it down to an ethic, you know, be nice. <laughs> but they're learning something of the beauty and the wonder of the faith and getting to participate in it. So, A, that's wonderful. The children's education has gotten better, I think, than when I was a kid. But also that this role of parents, like, what 
what are we teaching the parents that what could be more important? What could be a bigger responsibility um, than raising your child and having a domestic church and passing on the fullness of the faith? So maybe we should be spending more time giving parents resources and ideas. Like I have in my book a recipe for how to bake this really easy bread that kids can mess with and not mess up. (laughs) And it has an idea for an activity where you could talk to them about Jesus, the bread of life, you know, so it gives you an activity to do with your kid and, you know, a way to talk to them about your faith. And I think we need to equip parents better as opposed to kind of treating religion as something that we pass on to children so that they'll be nice (laughs) instead of, you know, in the Jewish household, for example, you know, it's much more an emphasis on your keeping this way of life. And and Catholics, I think, sometimes have lost that, that when you get married, um, you're promising to keep a household, to practice hospitality. So how can we help couples do that and give them some skills or some ideas? Because it's not an easy task. No, it is not. So, um, so you're listening to Church Life Today. I'm speaking to Anna Nussbaum-Keating. Uh, I have one uh, kind of last, uh, I think, overall question, and it's a big one, and it's related in some ways to your work at Colorado College, where, where you're really, I think, creating a space for people to come in. Uh, but it's also a kind of model of ministry and an approach to Catholic life that I think is really engaging with culture that's dialogical rather than sectarian. Um, how do how does the church, I think, based upon your work there at Colorado College, how do, how do they start to work with young adults right now, uh, you know, globally, not just at a place like Colorado College, but, but how do you take what you're doing and, and start to think nationally about a renewal of, of young adult ministry? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, I think, again, I came up in the era where it was a lot about of ethic. Uh, so like when I was coming up in young adult ministry, there was this chastity rally craze. I don't know if you remember that, um, which was great because it was interesting to hear talks about sexuality when that's what we were thinking about. But then there was this sort of process at the end where you signed a card, you know, <laughs> sign on the dotted line. And it didn't really work. A lot of young people were just sort of peer pressured into signing on this dotted line, but they didn't really have this this experience of falling in love with God or with a way of life um, because it had been boiled down to a list of do's and don'ts. Um, So I really don't want to do that. I really want to share something beautiful and hope that in the process of falling in love with Jesus or developing a friendship with Christ or a prayer life or wherever someone comes in, that then from that place of love or beauty that speaks to their heart, there's an ongoing lifelong conversion. Um, So I hope that with this book or with my work at Carter College, I can create these opportunities to get off the internet, to be still, to be quiet, uh, making something with your hands to pray, um, to experience ancient liturgy, to have a way into this God of beauty, this sense of wonder and awe and reverence, which is so missing from young people's lives. And then out of that experience of wanting more of that what kind of life, what kind of choices would I make that would result in more of that sense of meaning, purpose, holiness, awe, right? Instead of the choices come first. (laughs) Because for me, I feel like I get more married, for example, right? Like I fall in love first, and then I learn how to be a better wife after the fact. And so I hope we can help young people fall in love um, with this beautiful way of life, um, and live it and live into it. So that's kind of my hope at Carter College is to begin with that, with all the beautiful stuff 
of Christianity and the Christian tradition and Catholicism, and then hoping that that experience will impel their action. Well, Anna, that that sounds like the kind of thing that we need you to go on the road and talk about. <laughs> I'm available. Good. I'm available. <laughs> where, where can people get, I, get your book, The Catholic Catalog? You can get The Catholic Catalog. It's a field guide to the daily acts that make up a Catholic life on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Catholic bookstores. Well, Anna, thanks so much for being on, and we hope one day, not so long from now, to have you back. Awesome. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Welcome back to Church Life Today. Let's tune in to Office Hours with Professor John Cavadini, Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Professor in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. How can I explain the Eucharist to someone who doesn't understand how bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ? Let's start like point number one. Point number one is what Pope Benedict says in the Sacrament of Charity, that in the Eucharist, I find the passage, in the Eucharist, Jesus does not give us a thing but himself. And I think that's the important starting point. So the doctrine of transubstantiation has to do with explaining or at least um, articulating what we mean or how it is that Jesus is really there giving himself and not just a thing. Maybe you remember um, from a passage we read in the Inferno, in the ninth circle of the Inferno, you've got Count Ugolino gnawing on the neck, frozen in the ice, gnawing on the neck of Archbishop Ruggieri, his betrayer, who locked him, Ugolino, and his four kids up in a tower and starved them to death. And at a certain point, one of his kids, one of Ugolino's kids, seeing his father biting his hands, like I and all Italians do <laughs> from time to time, um, said, his, the son looked at the father and said, Father, why do you look like that? Um, mistakes, thinking he was hungry. He said to him, you clothed us in this sad flesh. It is, it is up to you then to, to, um, to take it back. In other words, he was offering him his flesh for the father to eat. And I forget the exact expression in the text because I don't have it in front of me, but somehow um, his heart grows still and cold at that point. And commentators refer to that point often to say that what Ugolino hears is something only physical, so eat this flesh. But what the child is doing, what actually he's saying is, I'm in, in offering you my flesh, I'm giving you my love. You have to hear what's the substance of what's actually being offered. And Ugolino misses that. And so all he hears is, is the offer of food. And 
because he doesn't hear the underlying love and doesn't allow that to convert him, he persists in vengeance for all eternity, and he ends up actually eating the flesh of another human being, cannibalism. So that's not what the Eucharist is, cannibalism. So how do we understand it? Jesus says, point number two, for the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world, meaning what? He didn't start cutting his fingers off and handing them around as candy. Here, have this. Or making incisions and saying, you know, suck the blood out of this wound. That's disgusting. That's cannibalism. So the Eucharist is not the sacramental equivalent of that. So what is it? Well, when Jesus says, I'm going to give my flesh for the life of the world, what does he mean? He means I'm giving myself, right? Because for a human being to give their body, to give their flesh, means to give themselves. So it's an act of unimaginable love. And the Eucharist is the sacramental presentation of that, of Jesus giving himself for the life of the world. So when we say that the substance of the bread and the substance of the wine change into the substance of the body and the substance of the blood of Jesus, we're not saying that the matter of the molecules, the matter as we understand matter of bread, become molecules of flesh, only we can't see it. And that the matter of the of the wine becomes another kind of matter, only we can't see it. So it's not a miracle that's hidden in the sense that one kind of matter changes into another kind of matter. Normally you would see that. A miracle is something you could normally see. So it's not an invisible miracle that we can't see. Instead, it's that the underlying substance of bread, what makes it bread, changes. And the underlying substance of the wine changes so that what you have under the, the matter of the bread and wine, you can say, has now become merely appearance for another underlying reality, another substance, which is what? The body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. That's what's contained in the Eucharistic species under the form of bread and wine. And that's not what we ordinarily call a miracle. It's much deeper than a miracle because it's the change of substance of something created into body, blood, soul, and divinity. It's now can be worshipped. From the moment it's consecrated, it can be worshipped. That's the point of talking about a substantial change because we're talking about a substantial presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, one that's unique enough so that the Eucharist is unique and so that when we say that Jesus in the Eucharist doesn't give us a thing, his physical flesh or his physical blood, just those things, but gives us himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity, we have a way that guarantees it's truly him offering himself. That's the language that articulates the point that it truly is Jesus giving himself. And that when we receive communion, we're entering into his hour 
of sacrifice just as efficaciously as if we had been in the first century right there at the cross because it's a representation, sacramental representation of that sacrifice. Jesus is right there offering himself truly. So it's better to concentrate on that idea and transubstantiation is something which allows us to articulate some way of articulating how that could be.